Hey there and welcome to the Duncan Pentecostal Church podcast streaming from Vancouver Island here in Canada. And however you have found our podcast, we're so glad you're here. Before we jump into today's message, just a couple things I want to let you know. If you go to our website, www.duncanchurch.com, you're going to find a couple easy ways where you can connect with us. We have an online connect card you can fill out. Maybe let us know where you're listening from and check off the option to receive our what's happening email we send this out once a week it's a great way to stay connected with everything that's going on here at the church and even online apart from that there is a give button so if you're feeling led you can do that right online through our website you can also find us on facebook and youtube we are so glad you're tuning in and we are believing that god's going to do something special in you through today's message enjoy How many of you have um, some strange traditions? Anybody here have any strange traditions? Nicole Fleming, you're the only one. What is your strange tradition? Do you want to let us know? No, she doesn't want to let us know. Okay. <laughs> all right, we won't, we won't pull it out of you. I think you all have some strange traditions, whether you know it or not. You probably do. Whether it be around, you know, celebrating a certain seasonal holiday or your Christmas or birthdays or whatever it be. There's a lot of strange traditions out there. Have you ever heard of... Um, yeah, anybody here maybe from Spain, but there's something in Spain called the La Tomatina Festival. And this is the world's largest tomato fight. <clears throat> it's a tradition that has been going on, I think, since the 40s. The odd thing is, is they don't really know why it started. There's no reason behind it. They just have this massive tomato fight once a year, La Tomatina. And uh, you just get tomatoes thrown at each other, and it's a great time, I guess. Strange tradition, I would think. Another strange tradition is that if you're turning 25 years old, male or female, and you are in Denmark, you live in Denmark, and you are not yet married, you're still single, you know what they do? They douse you in water, and then they dump cinnamon all over you, just cover you in cinnamon. Do you want to know why? You don't want to, you don't want to know why? No? Okay, then I won't tell you. I don't know why anyway, because they don't know either. They just do these weird things. Another interesting tradition is in Mexico, and this is called... Now, I'm sure my Spanish is fantastic. Uh, La Mordida. Do you know what La Mordida is? Our, our Mexican resident family. Yeah, the Mendozas. This is where... <laughs> Apparently, it's not just in Mexico. Uh, this is where they take the, the birthday child, the birthday... Well, it doesn't even be child. Adults, they do it for too. Uh, boy or girl, doesn't matter. They just smash your face into the cake to shouts of Mordida, 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 which means what? Bite, yeah, take a bite, take a bite, take a bite. And they smash your face. I'll tell you this much. I know where I am not going to be on my birthday this year, and that's not going to be at the Mendoza's house because I like eating my cake, not wearing it. But <laughs> Well, strange traditions. We're, we're studying the book of Zechariah right now, and uh, we've actually finished the first six chapters uh, which were all about, do you remember the eight night visions that came in those first six chapters? All in one night, it was kind of like Scrooge, we talked about that, uh, how he had these, these visions that took place in one night. Well, so did Zechariah. Eight visions all in one night. That was in the first six chapters. But this morning, we're going to be beginning chapter seven. And there's a transition now in the book. There's no more night visions. Uh, instead, what we're going to see in chapter seven is there's going to be a, um, a remnant from Bethel, Bethel that come with a question to Zechariah that come to Jerusalem. And you would think, well, that makes sense. I mean, after those crazy visions, 
you would probably have some questions for what took place. But the strange thing is, is that the question they bring is nothing to do with the visions. Instead, we're going to see this delegation that comes from Bethel with a question about the tradition of fasting. That's what they're going to ask about. They've had a tradition, and they're going to ask about this certain tradition. So I I want us this morning to turn to Zechariah chapter 7. This morning, I know there's Bibles, and I always tell you this, grab a Bible in the seat around you, which you can do, and I encourage you to do. But I'm actually going to be preaching and teaching from the New Living Translation this morning. So the seats have um, the ESV or the English Standard Version, and I will explain in a few moments why I'm specifically teaching from the New Living Translation this morning. But I encourage you to follow along. We will actually have the text for you as well on the screen in the New Living Translation. But it'd be good for you to follow along in the ESV just to kind of see a little bit of a difference in the translations. And um, Yeah, so why don't we pray, and then we'll, uh, then we'll get into chapter 7 of Zechariah and tradition. Anybody ever seen Fiddler on the Roof? Yeah, my mom's not here this morning. I don't know if she's watching online, but uh, I remember she would like to watch it sometimes when I was a kid. And I thought it was so silly, but I remember sitting on the, the steps in my living room watching it. I didn't have to, but I did. Anyway, that's a total aside. So let's pray. Father, this morning, I just ask that you would help us. Help us to learn. Help us to grow. Help us ultimately, Jesus, to look more like you. We want to fall more in love with you. We want to hear your voice. We want to experience you in our lives, and we want to be a people that represent you well. And so teach us from your word today, I pray. We thank you so much. Amen. All right, Zechariah chapter 7. The the first thing that we're going to see is a request. So this is the first thing that we're going to see in our text this morning, is a request. So chapter 7 begins in verse 1. On December 7 of the fourth year of King Darius's reign, so this is 518 B.C., Okay, another message came to Zechariah from the Lord. At this date, if you remember earlier in Zechariah, we were told that the, the visions, the night visions began in the second year of Darius's reign. So this is two years after those visions. So that's kind of where we are in the book. It's also two years into the rebuilding of the temple, which is actually the halfway point. We know that the rebuilding of the temple, this is why the remnant, this 40,000 that came back to Jerusalem were there, was to rebuild the temple. Haggai Um, The prophet kind of got them going. They'd been back in Jerusalem for many years. They'd laid the foundation, and and then it sat for like 14, 15 years. And Haggai had got them going again. Zechariah then was the one that came on the scene about a month later to encourage them, keep going, keep building, keep doing what you're doing, finish this project. And they're actually halfway through the project at this point. So, um, so here we are, and there's, there's, this is the kind of the, the timing that it is, and this message, we're told, that comes from God at this moment is because the people have a question. Verse 2, the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regamelech along with their attendants to seek the Lord's favor. They were to ask this question of the prophets and the priests at the temple of the Lord of Heaven's armies. Should we continue to mourn and fast each summer on the anniversary of the temple's destruction as we have done for so many years. Now, Ezra chapter 2, verse 28, actually tells us that the the exact number, how many many Jews do you think had returned to Bethel? We know there was about 40,000 that returned to Jerusalem. There was a whopping 223 that returned to Bethel after the captivity. So these are Jews that had, they were loyal Jews. They had been taken in captivity to Babylon. They were originally from Bethel, and they had returned to Bethel. There was actually, we talk about this remnant that had returned, this 42,000 that had returned to Jerusalem. There was remnants of Jews in the other cities as well, in the other Israelite cities. 223 
to be precise. That's what Ezra 2.28 tells us, precisely who it was and how many. And so this remnant that's in Bethel, they send this delegation led by Sherezer and Regamelech to ask an honest question. It's an honest question. They're genuinely seeking the Lord's favor. That's what it says here. And the question is basically this. Should we keep doing what we've always done during the 70-year captivity? And they are asking specifically about this one fast that was to commemorate the destruction of the temple. But of course, the temple is midway finished at this point, and so they're going, well, it's almost finished. Do we need to keep doing this? Should we continue with this fast? What we need to understand is that there was actually four fasts. There were four fasts that that had been added to the Jewish religious calendar while in the Babylonian captivity. The first fast was in the 10th month. And this was to remember the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem. So when Babylon came and sieged Jerusalem, that's the first fast they started in the 10th month. And then in the fourth month was when the city walls were broken through. And so they had a fast that they also would remember in, in the fourth month for that very fact. In the fifth month, that's when the temple was destroyed. So they commemorated that by having another fast. Then there was a fourth fast that took place in the seventh month. And this was to remember when Gedaliah was assassinated. If you remember when Israel, uh, the, 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 when Judah was carried off, so of course there was a northern kingdom and southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was carried off more than 100 years earlier into exile by Assyria. The southern kingdom, uh, Judah and Benjamin, still remained in Jerusalem. And they weren't, uh, the, the, the siege, this is then, of course, Babylon then took power from the Assyrians. They sieged Jerusalem, they took over Jerusalem, and then they took Judah, the southern kingdom, captive. However, um, Nebuchadnezzar left a number of, of Israelites in Jerusalem to kind of just kind of keep a few, few things going there. And what he did was he appointed this man, Gadaliah, who was the, um, the governor. He was, he was a, a, appointed by Nebuchadnezzar. However, Gadaliah was assassinated. And at that point, it was completely, um, the, the remaining Jews basically ran off. A bunch of them fled to Egypt. Some of them actually went into captivity then in Babylon. At that point, Jerusalem was finished. Nobody was left. It was totally desolate. It was, the captivity was basically in full force. So these were four fasts that, that the Jews had started during their 70-year captivity. What's important to know is that God did not command these fasts. He commanded only one fast in Scripture, and that was on the Day of Atonement. So these were kind of self-initiated these were basically traditions that they had created, perhaps out of good intentions. But you can tell, verse 3, if you look at verse 3, it said that it was for so many years. It kind of indicates that they were kind of growing tired of it. Should we keep doing what we've done for so many years? Do you kind of get this? That's what commentators point out. They've grown tired of it. And it's kind of a question that we should probably consider too. Should we do what we've always done? That's kind of what they were asking. Should we do what we've always done? Do we have any traditions maybe as a church or as individuals that we do? Why? Just because. Do you know what I'm saying? There's certain things that we do just because. Why do we do what we do, whether it be as a church or as an individual? And, and, and for so many years, kind of like they were saying, we just because we, you kind of need to be a little bit of a two-year-old at this point. Why? Why? Well, just because. That's never an appropriate answer for a two-year-old, is it? And it shouldn't be appropriate for us either. Just because. This is kind of, let me just say this. This is honestly not the, but one of the reasons that we started the community gatherings. 
to shake things up, to go, why do we do what we've always done? How, why is it that there's one guy or girl that stands up here and teaches everybody and everyone just sits and listens? Why? Is it because? Because. Because that's how the church has always been done? This is, this is one of the reasons we, we, we kind of looked into doing community gatherings. to so go, well, what did the church really look like? Are we really doing, like, is it really serving the purpose? So we shook things up a little bit with these community gatherings. Daryl Johnson, in his book on Revelation, said this. He said, I think it would be healthy for every congregation to periodically, say every five years, declare that all programs and activities stop and only be started up again if it can be demonstrated that they are, in fact, accomplishing their biblical purpose. Perhaps we ought to do the same with our own personal lives. Periodically stop everything and only start up that which keeps us in relationship with Jesus and fulfills his purpose for us. I think that's a really good point that he makes. One of the reasons, this is honestly one of the reasons that I'm teaching from the New Living Translation this morning, is because we can get stuck in traditions, religiosity of kind of believing that you can only do certain things certain ways. For instance, you can only use the English Standard Version. No, that's not the truth. That's like there's some churches that are King James only. If I was at a church that was King James only, I wouldn't understand anything. I don't understand that translation of Scripture. I teach from the English Standard Version because it's a very literal translation. It's a good translation for us to dig into. However, in, in my journal, so months and months ago when I was studying Zechariah in my morning time, I actually had use NLT because the way that if you've been maybe comparing this morning, if you've been following along in the Bibles in the pews, it, it's a little more confusing reading it from the English Standard Version. And the New Living Translation just puts it much simpler for this passage. It just explains things a lot better. And so I don't want us to become religious and all tradition about you can only use the ESV. That's not true. That's not, that's not the way it is. Or the King James or whatever. Sometimes it's better to actually use other translations. It's even, it can be, the same thing can be said about verse-by-verse teaching. Of course, you know if you attend here, we tend to go through, on a Sunday morning, it's almost the same style that we go through every Sunday morning. We go through a book of the Bible, verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter. Is that the only way to teach and preach? No. There's lots of other good ways that, that you can teach and preach. Personally, I feel like this is the most effective way, and it's just kind of my own heart. I feel like God's really spoken to me about this, and and, and shaped me the way that he shaped me. This is how my brain works and thinks. And so that's one of the reasons I teach this way. There's lots of other good preachers and teachers out there that don't teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we need to be careful that we don't become religious and all about tradition because that's just the way it has to be. We need to break out of that. You know, I think it's honestly because a lot of us, I've said this before, we have this, this Pharisee inside all of us. And a Pharisee, they genuinely, they did really want to please God, I think, in a lot of ways. They just got so messed up with it that it became so much more important about tradition than it did about God. And we've got to be careful what's happening in our lives. That we do, that, that when, especially when we honestly want to please God, we can put things in place that can all of a sudden just become a religious act, a tradition. And so I just want to ask you this morning, are there things that you do, or, or even that we do as a church, just because? Because it's tradition. Or does it truly lead you closer to Jesus? Or, or is it just religious? Does it maybe just make you feel holier and better? And so you do that thing. Why do you do what you do? 
It's kind of, it's a really good question to ask. In fact, it's essentially what God does next with his reply. So the first thing we see is a request. Secondly, now we're going to see a reply. And this is what God does. He gives a reply, beginning in verse 4. The Lord of heaven's army sent me this message in reply. Say to all your people and your priests. So this is for everybody. This is not just for the people of Bethel now. Of course, all the Israelites that were in captivity observed these four fasts. And so he says this, Say to all your people and your priests, During those 70 years of exile, when you fasted and mourned in the summer and in early autumn, was it really for me that you were fasting? In other words, what is God saying? He's saying, he's saying, why are you doing what you're doing? What was the reason that you're doing these fasts? God's like, they're asking him, they're saying, God, should we continue this? And he goes, well, I never told you to start in the first place. Right? That's what he, I never told you to start doing it in the first place. Why are you asking me about continuing? Is it, and God's kind of getting, are you really, is it really for me that you're doing what you're doing? Is it really about me? What's the motivation? In fact, God won't even answer their question in this chapter. It won't be until chapter 8. This is why we're going to be here for like another hour or two. It'll be next week, don't worry. It won't be till next chapter that God actually answers this question that they present to him. Because the first thing God wants to get at is their heart. What's going on with the heart? And so that's where he's kind of jumping right into. So he continues in verse 6. And even now in your holy festivals... Aren't you eating and drinking just to please yourselves? And here's the problem. God can, you know this, God can see through everything. We think we can fake him out, trick him. God knows, he sees through it all. Whether it's fasting or feasting, God saw their heart. And what did God see? God saw that it wasn't about him, it was about them, in fact. It was actually all about them anyway. Ultimately, see, they never fasted and they, they didn't feast. Neither one of those things was for God. The reason they were doing it actually was because of the consequences of their actions and of their sin. These essentially were pity parties that they had. Oh, the temple got broken! That's essentially what was going on here. They were pity parties. All these days, if you look at them, they all commemorated one thing. They commemorated the consequences of their actions. Do you see that? They commemorated the consequences for their disobedience. But these weren't to lament why the siege of Jerusalem took place. These weren't to lament why the walls were broken through. These weren't to lament why the temple was destroyed. And why were those things, why did those things even happen in the first place? Because of their sin. Because they disobeyed God. They refused to follow his ways and obey him. It's kind of like lamenting being caught. Are you, are you sorry? Yeah, I'm really sorry I got caught. Right? I'm sorry because of the consequences. That's what essentially these, these fasts and these feasts were about. They were really about lamenting being caught. Not that they had actually wronged, first and foremost, God or even somebody else. And how did God know that, you know, this was really what was going on with these fasts and these feasts? Well, you know, it's because we can't trick God. We can't trick God. He's got x-ray goggles. He sees directly through whatever you're doing, straight to the heart. Look at Jeremiah 17, 10. It says, But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. That's kind of scary. I give all people their due rewards according to what their actions deserve. You see, God sees our heart. In fact, here he says he even sees our motivation, our motives behind what we're doing. But he doesn't just see that. He also sees every minute that is lived outside of 
the heart and the motive. In other words, every minute that's, that's lived outside of the, for Israel, the fasting and the feasting. God rewards based on our heart and based on our secret motives. But here, as Jeremiah says, he also rewards based on our actions, how we live our life. And they may have looked religious. They may have looked really holy on those four fasts and, and their different religious celebrations and feasts in the year. But here's the truth is that four fasts a year still mean that there are 361 other days that need to be lived for God. Do you know what I'm saying? There's actions that need to be lived outside of that. And if they're just living for them, you know, them, those days just for themselves, what good does it do? You know this. You can't live like the devil 361 days a year and then take four days to say, I'm now going to fast and feast and God's going to be pleased with me. That doesn't make sense, does it? Right? A few religious days a year can't make up for the rest of your life that's lived for yourself. But I think in a, in a lot of ways, as I was thinking about this passage, I think our culture tends to have this kind of a thinking. You, kinda, you, you do some good actions to offset your bad living. Do you know what I'm talking about? I'll do some good things and that will offset my disobedience or that'll offset kind of the life that I live the majority of the time, but I'm doing these good things over here. I think this, I'm a little confused about this, but I think it's illustrated well with carbon offsets. You ever heard of carbon offsets? This is, this is straight from a, um, a website that, that you can purchase these things from. And it says this, carbon offsets are tradable rights or certificates linked to activities that lower the amount of carbon dioxide, CO2, in the atmosphere. By buying these certificates, a person or group can fund projects that fight climate change. This is the key sentence. What's it say next? Instead of taking actions to lower their own carbon emissions. In this way, the certificates offset the buyer's CO2 emissions with an equal amount of CO2 reductions somewhere else. Hang on. Why don't you just make changes to your own emissions? This is like, was it, was it, I think it was um, Al Gore that flew around in his big jumbo jet, private jumbo jet, um, talking about, I think it was, that, it was called an inconvenient truth, I think it was. It was like this kind of all about climate change. <laughs> oh, but I've got carbon offsets that I'm buying to offset what I'm using. Why don't you just not, why don't you do both? Why don't you invest in stuff that's going to help the environment and also reduce your carbon footprint at the same time? Do you know what I'm saying? It's hypocritical. Yet this is how our culture kind of thinks. Right? I'll, I'll offset my bad actions with some good behavior. It makes no sense to me. I don't, I don't get it. And, and in some ways, I think this was the same mindset of the Jews. We'll do some good religiosity to offset my selfish life. And I think sometimes it's not just the Jews. I think we do it too. We kind of make deals with God. Well, God, I'm going to pray a little bit harder this week. I'm going to give a little bit more. And you can maybe just turn a blind eye to that thing I'm going to do. Do you know what I'm saying? Honestly, we may not say it out loud, but we think it. I'm going to be a little bit holier here because I was a little bit bad over there. What? Like, but, but we, this is kind of what they were doing. And we aren't so different. Zechariah continues now, verse 7. Isn't this the same message the Lord proclaimed through the prophets in years past, when Jerusalem and the towns of Judah were bustling with people, and the Negev and the foothills of Judah were well populated? This was the same word that God had said to them time and time again, even when life was good. Notice, he's talking about when they were still in the land, when it was bustling, he says, with people. There was people ever, this was before captivity. He said, I told you this before. They were doing their fasting and their feasting before. 
And he was like, did it do any good? Instead of fasting or feasting, you know, on these specific days, it would have been much better to live for God 365 days of the year, not just certain days. And this is precisely what the prophets of old would say again and again and again. It's summed up really well in 1 Samuel. Samuel says this, the prophet Samuel, 1 Samuel 15, 22. He said, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed, which simply means to pay attention or to listen, is better than the fat of, ram- fat of rams. God wants heartfelt obedience, not hollow traditions and religion. And, if, and he mentions here the Negev and the foothills of Judah, which I think this is just an illustration or a, a perfect picture of what it looks like when we live a religious life disconnected from God. That, that's because the Negev was once this, this landscape that was a very large population. Now, as he's saying, at this point, the, the Negev was empty, unpopulated. Nobody lived there. The foothills of Judah would, once were a place where there was homes and there was orchards, there was olive trees, all kinds of uh, very fruitful crops. And by this point, it was desolate and empty. And he's like, do, do you see this? Tradition, rituals, religious days, they're nothing if they're not connected to God. If we're not connected to Jesus, it's just, it's, what's the point? He, Jesus told us, is the vine, we are the branch. We have to stay connected. And that's a picture of a life that just dries up and dies if it's only about observing some traditions and rituals without a connection to Jesus. Again, the Pharisees, he, Jesus spoke of them as whitewashed tombs. Might look good on the outside, have all the appearances of being a very alive church, you could say, but dead on the inside. And it's a good question I think we need to ask ourselves. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Is it because I'm so in love with Jesus that it just overflows from my life? Is it because I'm connected to the vine? We are a branch. He is the vine. We have to stay connected. If we don't stay connected, we die. We become like the Negev and the foothills of Judah. And so I'll ask you, are you alive inside right now? Do you, do you know that the, the love of Christ, that what he has for you, are you living life connected to him? Are you just... Honestly, this morning, are you just playing religion? You're just kind of going through the motions with no real connection to Jesus. You see, ultimately, God knew that the fasting and the feasting weren't about him because it should result in a changed life. This is the third thing we see this morning. We see a requirement. So the first thing we saw was a request. Then we saw a reply. Now we see a requirement, thirdly. Requirement. Verse 8. Then this message came to Zechariah from the Lord. This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. Judge fairly and show mercy and kindness to one another. Do not oppress widows, orphans, foreigners, and the poor. And do not scheme against each other. God basically says this. I don't, I don't want your religious garbage. I don't want it. You're fasting, you're feasting. I want stuff, God says, that represents me. Because fasting and feasting, religiosity, you know what it should do? It should result in us looking more like Jesus. God never asked his people to fast and to mourn. He didn't ask them to do these things the same time every year to remember the consequences of their sin. But you know what God did ask them to do every year, time and time again, was to treat others properly, to represent him well, to love on others, to be an example to a world that was watching them to see what God looks like. That's what he asked them time and time again. That list there in in verse 9 and 10. Judge fairly. Show mercy and kindness to one another. Don't oppress widows, orphans, foreigners, and the poor. Don't scheme evil against each other. 
That was what the prophets spoke about over and over again, and they refused to listen. Oh, but we'll do our fasting, and we'll do our feasting, our celebrations. And God's like, that's not really what I'm looking for. In fact, look at what his view of fasting is in Isaiah 58. He says this, Tell my people Israel of their sins. Yet they act so pious. They come to the temple every day and seem delighted to learn all about me. They act like a religious nation that would never abandon the laws of its God. They ask me to take action on their behalf, pretending they want to be near me. We have fasted before you, they say. Why aren't you impressed? We have been very, we have been very hard on ourselves and you don't even notice. I will tell you why, I respond. It's because you are fasting to please yourselves. Even while you fast, you keep oppressing your workers. What good is fasting when you keep on fighting and quarreling? This kind of fasting will never get you anywhere with me. You humble yourselves by going through the motions of penance, bowing your heads like reeds bending in the wind. You dress in burlap and cover yourselves with ashes. Is this what you call fasting? Do you really think this is what will please the Lord? No. No, he says, this is the kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry and give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them and do not hide from relatives who need your help. Ouch. That's the fasting that God looks for. That's what he wants. In fact, that's his view of fasting. Well, what's his view of feasting and celebrations? Look at Amos 5, 21 to 24. It says this, I hate all your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals. Other translations say your, your religious feasts and your solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and green offerings. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Oh, sorry. I will, uh, sorry, I won't even... Uh, I screwed that up. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. I think it's pretty clear how God feels about... Can I put it this way? Plain church? Very clear. I think it comes down to this. If you want to be religious, if you want to do the religious stuff, that's, that's all good, but you need to then live it. James 1.27 tells us that religion, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. You see, God, God asks us. He doesn't just ask us, actually. He requires us that we look like him to a watching world. And if our religiosity, it doesn't result in us looking like him, what's the point? What is the point of even meeting here if we don't look more like Jesus? God's far more impressed with compassion than he is with self-denial. He's far more impressed with obedience and love than with sacrifices and prayers. Live it, he says. Live it, live it. And I think one of the reasons that God requires this of us is because, fourthly, there is a reaping. There's a reaping. You see, we always reap what we sow, right? Uh, is it Galatians 6, 9, I think, that says, that, you know, do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. What you sow, you will reap. 
He talks to go on about the sinful nature and the flesh and to the spirit, but it applies as well in life. When you sow, what you, what you sow into others, you will reap. What you, what you sow with God, you will reap. That's the truth. There's a reaping. Look at verse 11. Your ancestors refused to listen to this message. They stubbornly turned away and put their fingers in their ears to keep from hearing. They made their hearts as hard as stone so they could not hear the instructions or the messages that the Lord of Heaven's armies had sent them by His Spirit through the earlier prophets. That is why the Lord of Heaven's armies was so angry with them. Do you see this progression of rejection towards God that takes place in this passage? You can see how he, he lays it out for us here, really. It starts with what? Just a refusal to listen. God's speaking, and you just ignore what he's telling you to do or ignore what he's telling you not to do. That's the first step there. There was a refusal to listen. And then it talks about how turning the shoulder, and it's actually in the Hebrew speaks of like an ox. They were trying to put like a yoke on that ox, and it just turns its shoulder like, no, I don't want to, I don't want that. God's saying that's the next step. And then he actually talks about in that passage that then their hearts became hard. Literally in the Hebrew, it's as hard as diamonds. Nothing could get in. Nothing could penetrate it to the point that the final step was what? That they just plugged their ears. They put their fingers in their ears. They knew God was talking, but they're like, we're not going to listen. And they just put their fingers in their ears so they couldn't even hear him anymore. It's the progression of, of a rejected heart towards God. And here's the thing. We need to understand this. It's never overnight. You don't just wake up one morning and go, my heart's hard towards God. It's, it's, it's a progression. These are all steps that, that it takes. But if you notice, what does it really revolve around or center around? It really centers around his word to you. It centers around that. Are you hearing his word? Are you hardening your heart to his word? Are you turning your shoulder to his word? Are you plugging your ears to his word? And so I just want to ask you this. Does, what place does his word have in your life? That's what it really revolves and centers. Is there a hunger for his word in your life? Is there an openness to his word? Is there an excitement? Sometimes, I wouldn't say always, but sometimes a loss of hunger for God's word is just, I think it's just the evidence of the starting progression of a hardening of our hearts towards God, of rejecting his instructions toward us. You know, Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Romans 10, 17. I've been thinking lots about this verse lately. And it's really been getting in my head. Because if you think about it, faith comes by hearing. What are you hearing? Here it's talking about that they refused to hear God's voice, their faith. What happened to their faith? That eventually died. In the same way, what am I hearing? And I think this can apply to so much of life. What are the voices that you're listening to? Because that is what your faith is being built upon. Faith comes by hearing. What are you hearing right now in your life? What are the voices that you're listening to, whether it be on television, whether it be through music? I've actually just recently, since thinking and meditating more on that, gone, you know, it's probably more important that I actually listen to music that's uplifting to God. Because my faith, my faith is grown through what I hear. Faith comes by hearing, specifically hearing by the word of God. Is your faith waning? Is it lacking? Maybe you've plugged your ears towards God or shrugged off his word. I actually, I, I heard of a tour guide in uh, Yellowstone National Park who was um, leading a group to a, a lookout deep in the forest, deep in the woods. 
And as this tour guide was taking this group with him, he was explaining all the different, oh, this is this, and all the, the amazing beauty that was all around them. And he had a radio that he was wearing that would be connecting him to the, um, the, the other um, stations and rangers in the park. But it kept making funny, humming, buzzing noises, and so he's, ah, it was annoying. So he turned off his radio. And he just kept going and explaining, oh, it's so peaceful and quiet, and, and explain, explaining all the beauty that was around them, all the trees. And within a a, a few minutes, all of a sudden, this group and this tour guide is met by this uh, park ranger who's completely exhausted and out of breath, (gasps) panting, frantically comes up to them. Why weren't you listening to your radio? Oh, I turned it off. You see, this park ranger was in the lookout that they were headed towards and had been watching and had seen a grizzly bear that had been stalking the group. But he had turned off his radio. When the warnings came, he couldn't hear it. And they, they fortunately got back okay, but, you know, I think in so many ways it's, it's just a reminder to us we need to be careful not to tune out or turn off the voice of God in our life. I mean, not only do we miss out on blessings, but oftentimes we put ourselves into danger. And the real problem, look, is verse 13. Since they refused to listen, when I called to them, I would not listen when they called to me, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Did you hear what that said? That's a really scary thought. Yeah, I did not know you. It was the way that Jesus even put it. You're right. God basically says here, listen, you've got earplugs. I've got earplugs too. It's kind of what he says. That freaks me out a little bit. Since they refused to listen when I called to them, I would not listen when they called to me. This is the thing. You always reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. And if you continue to refuse to listen to God, he may eventually refuse to listen to you. That's truth. I'm sorry, but that, I, wish I, didn't, I wish I couldn't say that. But that's biblical. God gave them what they gave him. And we must always be careful not to take God's mercy for granted. He finishes in verse 14. As with a whirlwind... I scattered them among the distant nations where they lived as strangers. Their land became so desolate that no one even traveled through it. They turned their pleasant land into a desert. Notice the last sentence there. Who turned their land into a desert? They did. They did it. They did all of it. The the reality, God says this here. See, when, when God called, they turned their backs. They put their fingers in their ears. And so what did God do when they called upon him? Because this is what happened. Babylon came and they began to cry out, oh no, we're going to get carried off. And God's like, you turned your backs on me for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. I'm sorry, but it's time for you to learn your lesson. It's scary. He turned his back and he put his fingers in his ears, essentially. The Babylonians came, threatening to destroy the nation. He says he refused to listen. He scattered them all over and the land became desolate. You know, the truth is is that we're always in danger of being just like Israel. I think sometimes, I think I can honestly sometimes be worse than Israel. Just going through the motions, the traditions, the religiosity, drying up and becoming desolate. You know, it, it reminds me of when with Israel, God, you know, pronounced Ichabod over the temple, which simply means the glory has departed. And you know what? They continued their services without even realizing that God had removed his glory. And that is such a danger for us as well. We can continue to play church. 
We can continue to, to go on with our traditions just because that's what you do, not even realizing God's not even in this anymore, perhaps. His glory's left our meetings, and we just continue on, not even aware of it. As we close this morning, this is what you do need to know, is that God's mercy is still available at this time. The Bible tells us that he is patient with us. He is overly patient with us. He wants no one to perish, but all to come to repentance. In fact, Hebrews tells us today, the author of Hebrews says, today if you hear his voice, today if you hear God speaking to you about something, he says, don't harden your hearts. Today, today, today. And so I just want to ask you simply this. Are you connected to Jesus? Are you connected to the vine? Do you know him today? If not, I want, to, I want to encourage you. Today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. You can come to him for mercy and for grace, for forgiveness, to find life in Christ. Do it while there's time. Or I'd say this as well. Maybe, maybe you've been connected, but you've become disconnected. And the Bible calls us to do what's called repent. Just turn. Turn back to him. Stop what you're doing. Change your thinking and turn again to Jesus. Or maybe, maybe life with you has just turned into tradition. Life with Jesus is just all about tradition. You don't even know why you do what you do. You don't even know why you even show up, perhaps. I'm not really sure why. Just because it's what you do on a Sunday. Just going through the motions. Just giving because that's what you do. You know, it's, 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 I, I, I've heard it said before. It's like, you know, me giving flowers to Andrea my wife, and she's like, oh, these are beautiful. Thank you so much. And I just simply say, well, I have to give them to you. I'm your husband. And she's like, actually, I don't want the flowers. Is that, I wonder sometimes a little bit with God if that's a little bit what kind of starts to happen. He's like, I want your heart. I want your heart. You know, Jesus talked about the religious leaders of his day, and he said their, 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 their religion, their life was just, just rules made up by men. That's all that they were about traditions, traditions. And so as the team comes back, we're, we're going to close with a song this morning. And I don't know exactly where you're at, but I want to give you opportunity to reconnect with Jesus today. I want to give you time to, to maybe recalibrate your life, focus again on Christ and what it's really about. And so as the team begins to sing, we're just going to take some time. We're going to take this, this, this song, just allow it as an opportunity. The, the purpose of this is just to create some space for you to connect with Jesus, to reconnect with Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, this is your time. This is your moment to put your faith and to put your trust in him, to look to him. And so as we close this morning, you know, I just actually, just even right now, let's just, just, just ask the Spirit to begin to speak to our hearts. Lord, we invite you right now to come and to speak directly to our hearts. I thank you for such great promises in the Scripture that speak about that though your hearts even be like stone, that your word's like a hammer that can break it apart. And so, Lord, some of us in the room this morning maybe have hearts that have turned a little bit too diamond-like. And we pray, God, that the power of your word would just break open that diamond the hardness of our heart would just be 
removed and that your Holy Spirit oil, referencing often in Scripture, the Spirit is oil, would soften again any hard areas in our lives. So Jesus, we invite you to speak right now in this moment. Lord, show us, reveal to us. Am I connected to you or am I just going through the motions? Do I actually know you, Jesus? Is there an intimacy with you? Is there a love? Is there a connection? Is it just purely out of relationship and love that I want to give you flowers? Not because I have to, but because I love you, because I want to. So just right now, Jesus, we give you time to reveal our hearts. Speak to us. We invite you. We say, speak, Lord. Speak, Lord. Speak, Lord. Maybe you're here this morning. You've never put your faith in Jesus. Maybe you're joining us online or joining us in-house today. I want to give you that opportunity right now that if anybody's in this room and you have not connected your life to Jesus, the living water is how Scripture describes him. You may be thirsty and dry, but life is found in him and in him alone. I just want to give you that opportunity right now, and I'd love for you, if you just wanted to put up your hand, I would love to just connect with you after the service, just give you some next steps of walking with him. Is there anybody this morning that would say that? Peter, would you just pray for me as you close? There's one of you. Is there anybody else? Just put up your hand. I want to make sure that you just know kind of what's next. Anybody else? You can put that hand down. I see your hand. Well, Father, I thank you for this life that's saying, I'm done living my own way. (laughs) I'm done living dry life. I want to drink from the living water. In fact, your Bible tells us that rivers of living water will actually flow out from us. We'll be so full of life that it'll begin to pour into other people's lives. And I pray for this life this morning right now that's saying, I want to be connected to Jesus, that they would understand that there's nothing that they can do. It's all been done in you. All that they can do is come to you and say, here's my life, my sin, my mistakes, everything that is not of you, and I give it to you now. And I ask that you would give me a new start, a new life in you. Teach me to walk in obedience to your ways. Teach me to walk in line with your spirit. I thank you, God, that you say that you actually give them now your Holy Spirit living inside them to bring life, to bring newness. And Father, I pray for every other person in this room this morning that in some way we become disconnected. We're just going through the motions. Jesus, we want to be about you. We want to build our lives on you, Jesus, on the love that you established in this relationship. We don't want to be religious. We don't want to just do it because that's what you do. We want to be about you. So Lord, renew that in our lives, I pray right now in Jesus' name. Speak to us and show us what needs to change, where we've become disconnected, where we've allowed death to enter in perhaps. Holy Spirit, come. We invite your glory again. Don't let us do church without you. God, don't let us. Soften our hearts again. Bring that hunger again, I pray, O Lord.
Thanks for listening to the podcast from Duncan Pentecostal Church, located here in Duncan, British Columbia, on beautiful Vancouver Island. At DPC, we believe in teaching the whole Bible to build whole believers who can impact the whole world. For more information about us, find us online at www.duncanchurch.com or find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching Duncan Pentecostal Church. Have a great day.